Oh, they'll hear. Oh, they'll hear us. Oh, they'll they'll hear me. Is there if you take the title seriously? <laughs> Yet being the operative word. Uh, I'm my Mason. I uh, I look after the Colloquium Lanarkesia. I'll be your moderator today. And joining me on the panel, starting at my extreme right, is. Hi, I'm Oscar Rios of Golden Goblin Press. I am in author and publisher of Cosmic Horror RPG, fic, RPG material and fiction. I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a full-time game designer, uh, most relevantly to this crowd, Trail of Cthulhu and Fall of Delta Green, most relevantly to this panel topic, GURPS Horror 4th Edition, which was built on the skeleton of Nightmares of Mine. Uh, which was my uh, systemless horror book for uh, Iron Crown, in which I attempted to boil down what at that time was a mere 15 years of running horror uh, into wisdom. And the, those years have added up and stopped doing math. Uh, as Lovecraft told you, it's bad for you. I am Lynn Hardy. I am the associate editor for the Call of Cthulhu line with Bob, Pat Kaosian. I'm Cameron Mossbarger. I run a small company called From the Dreamland. We develop alternate reality games uh, based on Lovecraft games. Our goal is basically to take the horror off the tabletop of books and inject it into your real life. There you are. So, okay. Um, I've got a question to post the panel. Uh, please answer it in any order you desire. Um, I would like to ask, do horror games deserve their reputation for killing off player characters. Because the title of this is Everyone Dies and Goes Insane, which is often a phrase attributed on the internet to games like Call of Cthulhu. You know, oh, why bother playing it? Everyone just dies and goes insane. Is that a fair representation, I ask you? Oscar, do you want to kick it off? Um, I think um, it is true and it is not true. I, I think it, it's good that it's out there because people come to Call of Cthulhu like big game hunters. Everybody starts off playing, you know, uh, power spiral games like D&D where your characters are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then you grow up and you come to something like Call of Cthulhu where your characters are usually getting weaker and weaker and weaker every time you play. Um, you're that same bullet that can kill you at your first game can kill you at your tenth game. So it's good that it's out there so people take the game seriously. But to be honest, only really the bad players die or go insane all the time. The, the good players are smart enough not to do the really stupid things that get you killed or have you drive insane. Um, so yeah, uh, I'd say it, it, it's as true and as false as it equal measures. I was right with Oscar uh, because he's absolutely right that it is uh, both true and false and it is frankly to my mind good that that lie exists. It's a noble lie, CF Plato. Um, 
because what it gives you is permission to stop uh, turtling up and trying for the power fantasy and power gaming and doing all the things that annoy uh, players at GMs in all the other games. Because if you come to a game that says Of Cthulhu on the front, you are signing a social compact that says, I agree to be vulnerable, I agree to be weak, I agree to die, I agree to go insane, I agree to turn over some measure of necessary agency to the world, to the other players, to the monsters, to the game master. And by signing that social contract, you make gameplay better for everyone and you make horror gameplay specifically possible because without signing that social contract, you can't have horror game. You can only have dark adventure gaming, which is also fun and we've all done it, often while pretending we were playing a horror game. But if you want to actually uh, experience horror gaming, you have to be vulnerable and to make yourself vulnerable, you have to begin by saying, my character can die, it is not an extension of my personality, it is a, a, a scrim that I'm wearing for the purposes of play. And then Oscar ruined it by saying only the bad players die, which uh, is um, not true in my own personal experience. I have had the great joy, and in fact, many of the best deaths uh, come from superb players who simply, the dice go against them. And um, they were standing too near the artifact when their friend, the not perhaps as concerned player, detonated it. That kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> they were the ones who rolled the one on the lethality die in Fall of Delta Green when a different player than the first if, player if in this the example. Dice assassinates you. <laughs> the uh, dice assassinates you. Uh, drove matter. into the Deep One's um, uh, time projector with a car and um, set off a potentially lethal wave of chronal energy. And someone had to roll the one. And it was, in fact, the literal best player at my Wednesday table, my Fall of Delta Green player. And uh, it was magnificent that that happened uh, for a lot of reasons which I won't get into but I, w I would say that the permission that it grants you and the play that it opens up even if it's a straight up lie it is a million percent worth telling <laughs> um, I think as well it, it sort of depends on what genre of horror you're playing as well so if you've got survival horror alien let's face it you know pretty much everybody is going to die in the end final girl the whole thing is that most people will, but it's nice to have a survivor to go and tell all the terrible stories of exactly what happens. So yes, it's, it's a useful lie, as Oscar and Penn have said, but not always true. Yeah, I agree with that. It is a nice, useful lie. Um, it's nice for players to come in and realize they're squishy. Um, I always find great joy in D&D players starting to call a Cthulhu game. You see their <laughs> eyes get wide because they're so used to running at the monster and just have an entire table of XD&D players just disappear. Um, it gives players a lesson to learn and in my opinion it adds a lot more strategy to the game instead of other games where it's run at the monster, fight, you're super overpowered, there's no real risk. Whereas this makes people more, have to actually come up with a plan in order to avoid dying. And I think that's what makes horror games so unique is the fact that I don't want to say that D&D players don't have like an intellectualism to play the game, but I think it like requires a lot more intelligence than a lot of other tabletop games. Because you have to plan, you have to understand what you're going into, 
you can't just come in guns a blazing. So I think it is, even if it's a lie, I agree with you guys, it's an important lie to have in the game. It gives an expectation. I'd like to add a veneer of historical uh, truth to this as well, in terms of the perception. Um, and, that, and my answer is in two parts, I will be brief. Uh, firstly, uh, early Cthulhu games, particularly Call of Cthulhu being the first one, uh, early scenarios, if you look at them now, and we can go and buy a box set of the second edition, <laughs> <laughs> um, you will note uh, they're in, they're, they are a mixed bag. And I have yeah, been completely fair, uh, is they are in fact smoke, smoke, absolutely fantastic, and that remains so to this day. Others may be less so, or have matured uh, less well. Um, and when they were being written, there was a template for role playing games called DD, which involved going around the dungeon and fighting things. And that template carried over certainly to some early Call of Duty stories that were bots. That it means literally, come the house, look around, have a fight, because you know, you've got a bunch of PCs with a stick against you know, three, three attack per round balls, and there's 20 of them. And so, yeah, the perception may have started there, and I think that's, that's entirely valid. I think, obviously, times have changed, and the game has matured and developed over time. And, I think you know, what everyone is saying here is very valid in today's game. The other, the other added bit of history I would like to add in is a lot of people who come to Cthulhu who only try it once or twice and maybe come away with this perception do it at a convention game. And the context of your game makes all the difference. Because con, con, um, con games do tend to end in mass destruction, insanity and death because it's fun. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, just to kind of codify that very briefly is um, the games you all talk about. You know, if you're a, a veteran, a computer player, trailer, whatever, whatever version of the is your heart's desire. The games you talk about ten years time, or the games you talk about from ten years time, are the games where you all died and went horribly insane. I do it when we first played masks. We all died because we found a glowing rock and thought it'd be really cool if we stole that rock because clearly it's magical. And we all died of radiation poisoning. <laughs> but that's the story we tell 20 years later because it's fun and it's a memorable thing. But that's my work on that. But I'd now like to ask. Um, so counted death, it's a it's a product of a horror game. Because without character death, where is the horror? Is is one potential you know, question? Is you know is that is that true? Um, and secondly, if that is the case, what can we do in a horror game to mitigate character death? Either embracing it in, in terms of how we run and write the games, or in terms of how do we dial it back while keeping the tension and the horror without necessarily killing every character every five minutes in the game because it's a horror game. What do you say? Um. I've uh, found a lot of times when it comes to trying to keep characters alive, yeah, in a horror game, it is something with main characters or player characters have to tear character sheets sometimes a bit, and I found that a really well-developed NPC being murdered in front of the players can enact a lot more horror and fear than their actual character dying. Because if their characters keep dying through a long campaign, like the Mask in the Heart of the Lotep, it then just becomes frustrating. 
And then keeping them alive, also sometimes it's hard for the keeper, but you've got a screen in front of you. You can just cheat. You can just go, hey, no, uh, that cult has rolled a one, and you can totally make it as, you know, everybody starts to die. So you can still keep the players alive and still have the horror with you. You don't have to kill everybody, in my opinion, to have that fear in the game. My mind just went complete blank there. <laughs> I was too busy paying attention. <laughs> rules and things. Rules and things. Yes, of course, you know, you do. We have rule books. There are useful frameworks in there to help you get round this. Obviously, in Call of Cthulhu, we have things like, look, so if things go wrong, players under most circumstances have the option to spend luck to turn those slightly iffy rolls into less iffy rolls. Um, as Cameron said, you know, you might want to put it if you use a screen. If you don't use a screen, that's slightly more difficult. Then again, you know, if a player, if a player and their investigator do something really, really stupid, give them a glorious death. <laughs> Giving them a meaningful death, a teaching death. As Cameron was saying about having an NPC go down in a blaze of glory. Does, does teaching them about the damage a truck does, is that kind of teaching? <laughs> If handled well. Um, so, you know, you can't fudge everything. At some point, it's going to happen. But make it meaningful, make it entertaining. And as Mike said, people will talk about it for decades. What about um, the actual scenario? You, you're running, but you're, you know, you're running off your head and advising it, or you're, you know, you're making some out of a book. What role does a scenario have in terms of mitigation? Well, a scenario, I mean, from the designer's perspective, if the designer has designed a scenario uh, that is something other than a sort of litany of encounters to kill an evening, the scenario should have its own logic and its own power and its own sort of atmosphere and theme. And there are scenarios that are intended to be uh, even within the same game, even within Call of Cthulhu, there are Cthulhu scenarios that are intended to be sort of um, more uh, subtle or messed up or touristy scenarios where you see something awful, but you're going to live uh, and be a, a shattered person, maybe, or a, a, a wiser person, according to your teaching theory, uh, afterwards. Um, and there are scenarios that are just straight up uh, ghoul fights, as you say, and they, those are intended to create a sort of an alien uh, zombie uh, survival horror vibe. And so a scenario's job is not to handhold the players or the investigators. The scenario's job is to present the story as effectively as in its, with, within its metier as it can. The GM is the intermediary, the keeper, is the intermediary between the scenario and the system and the players. And the GM is the one who has the, uh, the decision, do I fudge that die roll? Do I subtract the number of ghouls from this encounter? Do I, or do I conversely make the thing that they saw that was just supposed to creep them out, do I make you know, the image of it live in their retinas like Gatnathoa and mess them up throughout? I mean, your job is always to tune things for your specific game as the keeper. Um, going to the original question about rules, um, I think that one thing that you can endanger, and I think you mentioned a, a 
NPC that everyone loves being slaughtered uh, is, a, is a lovely example. But you can build those even deeper into the game in something like Unknown Armies, where your character is always making choices and sacrifices. And even the, their own decisions about their character sheet are sacrificing other options. So they're always feeling loss and FOMO. And then when they have to make a decision, do I get that degree of magical power because I know it's going to screw over my buddies or screw over my family or screw over people I'm connected to in the web of the game. And then Delta Green goes, of course, one level farther with bonds where literally you make the choice between suffering your own actions or putting it off on your family and saying, well, I'll just um, ignore my wife. I'm sure that'll work out well. Um, that way I don't have to deal with the fact I just um, fought a frogman. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm sure no, no, nothing bad has ever happened as a result of that. And so um, you're having sort of these moments of micro-death or mini-death throughout a properly uh, paced Delta Green game that in a Call of Cthulhu game you either have to, you know, hope happens emergently out of role-playing or that it's like, well, micro-death is for losers. Let's just have a mega-death and you know, slaughter the guy. Um, look at him fighting a frogman like he thought he could do that. Um, so I, I feel like uh, rules ha have some of the job, and the keeper has most of the job. The scenario's job is just tell a, tell a good story. And that might be a you know, deadly story or a less deadly story. But I think a well-written scenario should also have some advice for people who don't have as much experience. Yeah, it, it so should say at the beginning. Guys, guys leave yeah. me something to comment on? Yeah. Please? Yeah. Okay. Um, what is this mitigate death thing you speak of? Yeah, um, it, Here's the thing. The scenario should be challenging. There shouldn't be any character deaths or risks of character deaths for the first 50% of the material. You'll beat someone up. You'll scare the shit out of them. You'll uh, have the villains threaten them but you don't want to kill anyone halfway through a game because then they're out of the game halfway through and they haven't had a rewarding experience uh, middle 75% you know 50 to 75 yeah you're gonna you're gonna cripple people you're gonna drive them insane you're gonna hurt them real bad if they make the wrong choice but you don't really want to kill them because you want to keep them you want to save those deaths for the climax once you get past the 75% mark and you're in the finale, all bets are off. Um, characters know what they've signed up for, they've solved their mystery, they've decided we are going to try and do this, and sometimes they don't. Um, there's the Cartman solution, screw this, I'm going home. And if you really like your character, they will choose the Cartman scenario. I've had entire groups pull a Cartman and say, we've investigated this, we've assessed the risk. We don't know that little girl that well. Um, I mean, so, you know, if the volcano's gonna go, how many people really live on this island? Um, um, and they'll just, no, we're not gonna do this. But if they make that choice to go 75 to 100, they're taking that risk, they know what they signed up for, they know there's a risk of death, and if the dice go against you, or you're in the wrong point at the wrong time, or you've burned too much luck during the adventure, what happens, happens. And as long as the death is glorious and meaningful, and perhaps that death is the deciding factor of the game, if it's a self-sacrifice, and it's memorable, then nobody cares. Everybody loves that story of the time they died, as long as it was, as you said, a good death. 
taking away the possibility of death in Call of Cthulhu, just, there's no point. There's no fear without the possibility of death. Okay, which, which makes, makes the question, therefore then, is death the only horror in any of these games? Can we not find horror elsewhere without having to resort to just killing off characters? Well, there's, worse, there's way worse things than death. Okay, let's, let's talk about it then. Tell, tell me, what, what could we do? We don't want to, you know, risk it, because I mean, at the end of the day, okay, you, you can punch the dice roll, that's cool. But if you don't want to do that, let's say you open roll, you don't use the screen. The dice roll, let's say, man, then whenever there's a combat encounter, you know, a guy with a big stick could, in theory, you know, roll a zero one, do, you know, uh, crushing damage, and they're against a character who's a pretty small, you know, weak character who's only got seven hit points, and they come out right, and that's scene one, because the scene went that way, you open roll. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what if we don't want to do that? What if we want to try and find the horror that's not in, in the kind of the easy win of just, you know, I'm going to throw a combat at them and I'm going to scare them and knock them down a bit. What, how can we find horror elsewhere in, in these games? You hurt other people than the NPCs. Um, you have them witness other people being victimized, suffering. You go after their families. You show them the consequences. Um, you, you know, there's emotional damage. There's other connections. There's plenty of horror that doesn't involve death, um, capture, torture. Um, and even in a Cartman situation where you decide it's too risky, we're not going to do that, then the consequences of that inaction is its own form of horror. And of course, um, what Call of Cthulhu brought to the table is, um, you know, psychic injury and with lingering, long-lasting effects. I mean, you could go through plenty of Call of Cthulhu scenarios back in the day and never even have a combat and still walk out as scarred and wounded and blown up as if you'd gone through one because you've seen and done things that you can't unsee and undo, uh, even with, you know, sanity recovery as, as a possibility it's still, you know, injurious and it's still memorable. And again, you know, it, it comes down to the, you know, scenario to have described the thing well and the keeper to have run it well. But that threat of, you know, knowledge, put bluntly, is the threat that Call of Cthulhu uh, did and does better than any other game. And by presenting that sort of uh, injury as real, as mechanically uh, salient, it causes you to say, my character came into this adventure with uh, 72 San, and he came out of this adventure with 61 San. That doesn't sound like a good trend line. And that, even though it's literally just marks on a page, and maybe you don't have a, a permanent insanity, so you don't have a forcible role-playing trigger, you still felt that, you felt that loss. And that sort of trauma then is the sort of thing that a uh, experienced keeper, even a mid-experienced keeper, or even me in 1981, can learn to lean on. And you know, the old uh, you know, bad guy in the movie puts his thumb in your bullet hole. You as the keeper should be putting your thumb in their psychic bullet hole every time they walk through a door. And that's, uh, that is the, the job uh, of the, of someone when presented with the mir miracle that is uh, Sandy's uh, sanity design, that ability to do damage on an entirely different plane of existence is the great thing about uh, of Cthulhu gaming and taking it away, you know, really does leave it down to up oh, guy with a stick, up oh, nine ghouls, up oh, whatever. Then you might as well be playing D and D because the monsters are cooler. Uh, 
then just to kind of change the question slightly, um, um, you've mentioned you've mentioned very briefly about um, scenario design in terms of you know you can have a combat, you can. Um, what about you know in terms of um, options in terms of you know when you're putting a scenario together? Let's just say you're writing the scenario, yeah, and there's a potential, you know, there's a bunch of goals or deep points in the scenario. To give us some ideas of what, how you would present the options, or what options you would you know, kind of come think about in terms of yeah. presenting that. So the first option is: Does this encounter have to happen? Is there a way around it? Because you know, are your investigators a bunch of? Academics who've accidentally wandered into the wrong place, as academics have a habit of doing. You know, are they in way over their heads? Is there a way that they can use their smarts to get round this? Is there another way, another path? Do you have a mix of academics and gun bunnies? Is there a way that the academics could be helping the gun bunnies? How do you scale the number, the threat? If you play the pool, it's all bets are off, basically, isn't it, really? Um, you know, how do you scale that to a party that can handle themselves and take care of themselves and actually deal with a physical threat like that? So it's always thinking about who are my players, who are their investigators, what do they enjoy, how can I scale this so that, as Oscar said, the threat is there, but it's not instant death the moment they walk through that door into that nest of ghouls. Okay, so to kind of, to, unless you wanted to add it up, to divert the question slightly, just to kind of extend the question a little bit. Okay, let's just go to the source material, uh, you know, Lovecraft stories, because they're all full of, you know, I individual investigators having hand to hand combat with deep ones, aren't they? <laughs> Are there any fights in Lovecraft other than New King, Devil's Reef, and. Yeah, there's not many, are there? If there are, you know, there's a few, but there's not many. They're off screen. They're off screen. Yeah. yeah. And we're, you know, these all these games, you know, not just to call it food, they take inspiration from a lot of these stories and, and you know, the other stories. Like, you know, Love has some contemporaries and those came later. Um, and the combat isn't a central tenet in these stories. So why are we focused on combat all the time? Why, why you know, uh, and so um, what, can we, what can we learn from these stories that we can incorporate into games? Is I guess my question. Um, what I think you can learn from the corporate into gaming is a lot of Lovecraft stories, the main character will go nutty in the end. And like uh, you were talking about when it comes to sanity in uh, Call of Cthulhu, it's that whole psychic stack, right? That you can pull that out of Lovecraft books. The other thing is, um, in Lovecraft stories, a lot of times it's not just the main character that goes insane, but you get towards the end of the story and you realize the evil's still out there. It's going to keep going from generation to generation to generation or throughout this guy's entire family and loved ones, that sort of thing. So you don't necessarily need the combat to make it scary. It's the effect on the player or like the character in the book and how that's then almost undefeatable in a way and it's just going to affect generations later on in this guy's family. So like with Delta Green and Bonds, not just affecting one person, you're affecting an entire family or friend or pet sometimes. I play games, you know? And the effect you have on that attachment a lot of times can be horrifying to these players because 
as the keeper, if they're affecting bonds, you then get control and get to make that person wander off or commit suicide because they lose it. And I think that's really what you can take from Lovecraft's stories of the gaming is the idea that it doesn't need to be combat, it's the effect on not just the player or the character of the story, but everybody else, because there's no end. These monsters have been there since the beginning, or books have been there since the beginning. They're going to be there after all of these people are gone. Do you, do you want to go ahead on that? Yeah, yeah um, it's an interesting, like, one of my games this weekend. Just because the players decide they're not up for the combat doesn't mean the villains are okay with the combat ending. We had one situation where the players were, they'd investigated everything, and the big bad, or the person they suspected of the big bad, sent them a note and said, this has gone but on long enough, we need to have a sit down, come and see me. And they were scared pissless. They were, They knew that this is the guy that, hey, he hasn't aged in like 60 years. So they knew this is not somebody we want to mess with. But he said, we need to, you're poking into business. We need to talk. And everybody was like, we're getting in the car. We're going back to New York. We're never coming back. And then we've got one player saying, you don't understand. He's been alive for centuries. If he wants to find us, He's gonna find us. I mean, we can sure we can go back to New York. What makes you think he can't reach out and touch us there? Uh, and because it's a long game, it's not a one shot. It's a campaign, which is what we're all talking about. That's his character. Unless he dies, he's not rolling a new one. So he's got to deal with the, the the fallout of this. And he said, I- "I'm going to talk to this guy. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I could die, but." It needs to. It, we need to resolve this because I'd rather resolve it on his t- on a terms that he agrees with than we pissing him off and he just decides he's going to come after us. You guys can leave, but I'm going to say. And they were like, "Okay, we'll go with you." And it turned out okay. But again, it's it, just because they're ready to walk away doesn't mean the villains are going to let them walk away. I think what you need to look at when we're doing this whole psychological game combat is what type of story are you trying to tell? And if you're going for a psychological, creepy, encroaching horror, then combat isn't necessarily a useful part of it. But if you want to do survival horror, then yes, at some point it's going to come in. So again, it's just thinking about the types of stories you want to tell, thinking about your players and what they enjoy, and just making sure that you're trying to tailor what you're doing to that, so everyone's having as much fun as possible. Ken, what, 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 what can also what can the fiction teach you? Well, I mean, the fiction also teaches us that uh, there's no reason that your game is the story of Danforth and uh, Dyer. Uh, your story could be the story of Lake and Gedney. The poor bastards that got eviscerated by the uh, resurrected elder things, and then you know ran into the probably ran into the shoggoths as they were running away. I mean, your party could be the two poor jerks that the narrator of Lurking Fear says, "Let's go investigate the Martens Mansion together." Um, your party could be uh, the night watchman outside Miskatonic University when Wilbur Whiteley came by looking to steal the Necronomicon. Um, the fact that Lovecraft's uh, weedy neurasthenic narrators don't get into fights does not mean fights do not happen in Lovecraft. 
Um, they happen a great deal in Lovecraft. They just happen to the people who died to establish the danger. And be, yeah, well, the thing is that um, what is better drama? Being the folklorist who shows up at the cabin or being the guy in the cabin who is besieged by aliens. That, uh, one of those is a better, is a better story to play. Um, and if you are uh, uh, George Akeley in his cabin, um, uh, you know, with a Migo flying around, uh, your, your dogs are the only thing keeping them at bay, maybe the phase of the moon. You have no idea what's going on. You're writing to your idiot friend at Miskatonic, uh, trying to get him to take you seriously. You're desperately trying to record things so that there's proof, which will immediately be stolen. Um, by your idiot friend being sloppy. Um, it's, it's a terrific story. It's just the story that Lovecraft draws in the background because for him it's the story of someone seeing the outside and, and collapsing as a result of it. But even, um, uh, even you know, Akeley, he has to run away. If he'd stayed there in the, in the uh, cabin, he would have been, you know, brain cylindered, right? So, you know, uh, Olmsted, the, the greatest action hero in, in Lovecraftian literature. Did nothing uh, but run. But, it, but he ran really <laughs> he never well. Threw a punch. He ran he super well. Ran. <laughs> he didn't do nothing but run. First of all, he had a, a spare lock in his luggage, which he put on his hotel room, which, how many of you have ever even thought of doing that? I mean, say what you want. Robert Olmsted apparently had some stuff happen to him in some earlier trips that we don't know about. <laughs> And um, uh, and he thinks of the railway. I mean, he he's really good at investigating. And um, the fact that he was cursed by his blood is just the way the world works. Um, so there's uh, you know Robert Up uh, Richard Upton Pickman had a revolver. It worked for a while and then it didn't. Um, all the combat in Lovecraft is pretty much implicit, but it's absolutely part of the world. Lovecraft does not exist in a bloodless world. Um, and then Robert E. Howard shows up and teaches us how to write about heroes who want to hit things. <laughs> the, 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 a, a slight summation of some of the kind of comments we had. There's, a, there's two stories in, in a lot of Cathedral uh, games. There's the story you know, um, of the scenario, uh, wherever that is coming from, your head or someone else's, um, uh, which you know, effectively is, is, you know, we, we will call that a plot. Uh, of some kind, but obviously no 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 role-playing plot survives interaction with a bunch of players who've got their own plot in their heads. Um, but there is this, there is the other story, and sometimes um, you know we we talked about how we how we would use that, but it's the story of the characters. It's the character arcs that are affected by the consequences of their interaction with the scenario arc. Um, you know, if Ken and, and Oscar have said about the, you know, the, uh, the fallout on this, whether it's, you know, the sanity points, uh, my, my withered right arm from the spell I shouldn't have cast, or whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it's um, giving yourself permission and space to find ways to interlink those two stories together. But obviously it's not two stories, it's one sorry story and up to potentially six or more player stories to interlink in, uh, which can obviously get quite complex, but is doable uh, depending on the kind of scale of game you're playing and the length of time it takes to run out. I think that's yeah, worth, uh, worth uh, mentioning. Can I talk to you about, um, what did I want to talk about? I wanted to talk about um, more, about, more about death. Um, so we've, we've talked about 
Um, you know, literally everyone has kind of said something along the lines of, you know, meaningful dad. And um, I think we kind of get that, maybe. Um, what about meaningless dad? Yeah, horror in that, isn't that oh. horror that you're walking down the street because you got snapped out of existence. Isn't that horrific? Um, what do we think about that? You know, I mean, as a player, have you ever had a, a meaningless death? I mean, definitely meaningless death can be horrific. Just like suddenly that's it, you're gone. It's not big in the story, it doesn't really affect the characters. If it's done right, I think it can be horrific in a good part of the game. How do we do it right? <laughs> um, <laughs> very good question. Uh, to me, if it's very sudden uh, and it's around other players and it's just they're investigating something, they're like, oh hey, we think we got this, and then I, one I, of the characters is just. I gotta, gone. I gotta jump in and build on that point. Um, I don't get to play often, but I do get to play every once in a while. I had a character, parapsychologist, loved him, died in the first adventure. We solved the mystery of the haunted house. I was super annoying, taking notes, everybody hated me. Um, but we're going, and the house is collapsing, the ghost is wrecking everything, we're all running out, we are done. I fail a check, and I get hit with a falling chandelier two feet from the door, and I'm dead. <laughs> Absolutely meaningless death, totally fucking hilarious. We're st I'm still talking about it years later. That's how you make a meaningless death meaningful. Because sometimes it's just so stupid um, that, that it's funny. And again, dice assassination. We The adventure was over. I just failed that one last escape roll. Done. So as long as it's entertaining, it's okay. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I, do I seem upset that the guy died? No, it's a hilarious story. Even I find it funny. I, I would say uh, that's a sort of a subset or a really good example of what I would call emergent. Right, that the difference between a random death, which is you know ter ter scary in the abstract, if there was a meteor shower and any one of us could be killed by a meteor walking out, that would be scary, but it would be terrible drama. Um, and the, my example for that is uh, from my Knights Black Agents playtest when I was writing Knights Black Agents, my game about spies versus vampires, um, and my players had at one point discovered how great Overwatch was in combat that one of the players had a rifle, and when the bad guys showed up, he would just pick them off in the parking lot on their way to fight the good guys. And he said, this is the greatest weapon ever invented, the rifle, why do we never hear about this? And I said, because it ruins drama. And I have no objection to you using Overwatch in that combat, great, you did that, but you know, you're all very excited about what happens if you put a sniper scope on that rifle, or you get a Russian Dragunov sniper rifle and you go out into the streets, and I will tell you what will happen on a metagame level. The bad guys will also hire a sniper. <laughs> that makes sense because you're sniping them. <laughs> and that's how you stop a sniper. Now, if you want this game to be a game where literally at any time one of you dies because a high-powered bullet has gone through your skull, tell me, and that will be the game going forward. If you do not want that, don't get a sniper rifle. <laughs> and the players had a brief discussion and they said, oh, Overwatch was so good, but also we would like to go outside. <laughs> and they agreed 
that that would not be fun or meaningful death or play. Now, if it had been emergent, if the game was set in the Battle of Stalingrad, or you know, if the war, or, you know, um, uh, the Siege of Hue in the Tet Offensive, and you're going out there, yeah, getting sniped randomly might actually be emergent and might actually be uh, meaningful in a way, in the same way that the opening shots of um, uh, Saving Private Ryan are meaningful, when all those, we thought those were the main characters, die on the beach, and our heroes eventually get uh, up to the tank traps. Um, but what you have to be able to do is allow play to continue from that moment and say, well, you were shot down in Hue. Good thing we have a backup character for you to play. And that can be uh, sort of Ars Magica troop style, where you're the four investigators and you've got a squad of Marines with you. And if you, one of you dies, well, it turns out one of the Marines uh, was doing an undergraduate work in anthropology and <laughs> before he got drafted. And that's um, uh, now your new PC. And that everyone says, okay, that's cool. And they go on with it. But they remember, someone just got sniped. This is bad. This is a bad city. We do not like QA. This is unpleasant. And that is emergent because it comes from the nature of the setting. I think, I think emergent, you know, where, where the death is, you know, Partially, you know, or, or at least, is logically emerging out of the story, the scene, the the action, the players. The, the, they can see it. The, the, the loose ghost board. chandelier. Uh, you know, it, 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 it makes sense. The I guess the I think we have a fundamental sometimes reaction to the the bit in the game where um, I'm crossing, you know, I'm, I'm climbing the wall. And uh, I failed my climb roll by 2%. Oh, you've just fallen and you are dead. Because of, uh, effectively, character death, it, you know, because of the player, they wanted to climb the wall. But it's effectively, they made one bad dice roll, their character is out. I personally have a fundamental problem with that. I just think that's no fun yeah. and dull and not horrific. Um, and I think you avoid that. Well, that, that's why in, in Gumshoe you'd say, roll preparedness. Did you uh, clip yourself to a rope first? Well, and this is why, you know, you say, what's the intent here? Don't just make rolls. What is the goal? What is the intent? That's actually what you're rolling to identify and determine that. Not whether you the wall or not. What what I um, did in uh, uh, the Carmilla sanction uh, scenario, um, the players are supposed to go over the Alps to attack Carmilla's uh, uh, castle before uh, she wakes up. And going over the Alps is very hard uh, in the spring. Uh, there's crevasses and you know the whole Iger sanction fun. And so when you fail a climb roll or whatever, you I, you present to the players: Did you lose time or hit points? Because, of course, if you attack Carmilla at night, well, you are fucked. <laughs> but if you broke your leg in the crevasse, you are also fucked, but colder. <laughs> so they get to choose the form of the destructor, and that provides meaning. The Alp is not just scenery. The Alp is an obstacle, and you, your roll did count. But it lets you choose what happens as a result. And at no point is it, you're just dead. Because that, as you say, is arbitrary and, and unfun. Yeah, and I think that's just on one little point, and then I think I'll the question. And the, the point being, you know, whilst the GM keeper, who I want to say your name, choice here, um, 
while technically they are in control of everything, it is purely their game, as we all know, it's a shared collaborative experience where the players have an investment and a role in the game as well. Now, traditionally, the key bit is the one telling the grand story and the players are merely playing their part in the grand story. Clearly, we've advanced and we actually understand actually the story is a shared ownership. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, using Ken's example, you know, asking the player about, well, what is the consequence? Maybe you're guiding them, you know, so you say giving them a choice of time or, or uh, injury or whatever it may be, but actually getting the player to feel the agency in that and help them to define their personal character story within that context can obviously be quite a good thing. It's obviously, it's just a more kind of buying and integration into the story. So, worth just saying that, though. Um, but let's, um, there's only certainly questions about death I can think of, so let's see what you can think of. Uh, please raise your hand and uh, front row there. I was wondering when you were talking about connecting to Lovecraft's literature, um, what is a way that you've had an unexpected um, creative scenario where the players were making a decision that you knew was wrong, and in my head I went to, well, wouldn't it be really funny if they were about to rush in? And you're like, okay, yes, you rush in. And now, as Lovecraftian, you've fainted, and you come to, and now it's dark out, and so have you had any kind of scenarios like that where you saw that they were going down the wrong path and were able to help them avert it creatively? Cameron, do you want to put it on that? Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, you cannot control what a player does necessarily. Like, as a keeper, GM, whatever, you just kind of have to roll with it and hopefully get them either to have a consequence that's not going to, you know, wipe a party or something like that. Or, like you said, uh, like you said, lose time, something like that, and then try to get them back on track. I use what I call the uh, illusion of freedom. Right, like the player thinks he has all of this choice in the game, when in reality, as the keeper, it's you know you're running into illusions. Like, oh hey, I can go do this because I can do whatever I want, and you give them a you don't necessarily have to kill them, but you have to give them a little bit of consequence. Um, when I run alternate reality games for the company, I can't kill players. Like they're playing themselves and they've paid money to play this game. I can't just be like, oh, thank you for your money. Um, three days into the game, you don't get to play anymore. Like, everybody would hate me, and I would, nobody would ever play them. And so we have to be able to give them an illusion of choice, a, a sandbox with walls, and just roll with what they do, but still find a way to kind of bring them back in to the whole thing. And I think with players that just kind of go off the wall, Giving them a little bit of consequence, but not killing them, can kind of divert them back to where you know technically they're supposed to be. And I mean, in the, the example that you said, what you could do is, oh, they go through the door, see the ghouls pass out. The ghouls are about to have a really big party, so they're not going to eat them now. They're going to capture them and take them somewhere to prepare them for the feast. So you've, there's consequences. Now they've got to escape. So yes, it might just slightly divert things, but it's still, it's keeping the story going so that you can kind of bring them in on a diversion. They've just got a little bit of extra fun to have first. really want to worry about this. Have them, you know, faint or whatever, about, they know the ghouls have got it. Then have the players wake up and the ghouls have gone. Why did they leave? What did they leave? 
What did we do wrong? Why do I eat that? Why do I smell like I'm marinating? <laughs> there was a question about, yeah, yeah. by one, the player has to make choices, and they're not always good choices. Like, you're choosing between sometimes one villain and another who you're gonna support. Um, and then the other way we do it is um, essentially <coughs> through stalking the player, I guess is the best way that we can put it. Like, we try to personalize the game to each player, so we will scan through your Instagram, Facebook, um, if you have an old Google Plus account, we will find that and go through it in order to find like your favorite bar that we find out you go to every Thursday. And you'll get a phone call from our serial killer or whatnot going, how are you enjoying that cocktail this evening? And so that's how we up the horror without having to kill a character. It's just the pure fear of interfering in your everyday life and essentially trying to be to know you better than you know yourself is basically what And I guess the players have to sign some sort of waiver. So many <laughs> There are a lot of contracts that we sign um, where we talk about what we do with your information. Like we never keep it after the game. We never use it for promotional stuff or anything like that. It's in the game and everything's deleted. Um, we have a safe word for every game because we are interfering with your real life. I've just got this vision of, you know, Thursday night, sitting at home drinking the cocktail. Things happen. Text, stop, 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 stop. Exactly, yeah. It's like, no, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. Um, but yeah, it'll just be like, somebody on the phone will be freaking them out and they'll just be like, pumpernickel, and it's like, all right. And then we immediately shut off the game for you and we'll actually send you out like an email and be like, hey, are you okay? Do you have somebody that you can call to talk to you? Because, I mean, not everybody uh, can always separate what we do uh, from real life to game, especially when, you know, we're on Google Maps looking at the front of your house and then describing it to you, you know? So it's kind of hard sometimes to separate the real and the imaginary. So we try to keep it as safe as possible. No, I'm sure you do. Uh, questions? Uh, <laughs> He's okay, okay. Right, so I will give you to the front of the minute, everyone. At the back there, yeah. Uh, what role, if any, do you think permanent damage plays as an alternative to dying or going insane, whether it be using fingers, an eye, or something psychological, maybe using all your hair or chemical burns? Well, I think it's like great. <laughs> Uh, what, yeah, what role does you know, uh, I, I, um, permanent injury to the character in the game rather than just you know, not... I, I think if you're running a, a campaign and you've got uh, a character that loses an eye or, or has to, a leg amputated, especially in something like Cthulhu Invictus where you have infection rules and you know amputations are so much more common, um, I think that that player is going to wear that... He's going to lose that 20 points of dex with pride and he's going to carry that character on. I had somebody bring their own character today, um, yesterday, that 
you know, he emailed, can I play my own guy? I'm like, sure. And he's like, yeah, he's he's pretty messed up. He's got some back injuries. He got he's got 30 decks. And I'm like, you go you. I said, you be you. That's awesome. I will kill this guy if I get a chance. But I'm glad that you brought him. But no, it, it, you know, a chemical burn, a, a scar, you know, uh, it's awesome. It's just, you know, you lived. You know, scars, disfigurement. Those are the rewards of survival in Call of Cthulhu. I, I find that it's a really good way to reimmerse the player also. Um, often my players will have forgotten that they had this horrific injury, whatever it was. And so, you know, one of the players uh, got, got his hand necrotized uh, from touching, I forget, negative time or aclo or something. I forget what he touched. It was a bad thing. Don't touch things. Um, in my Fall of Delta Green game. And so he's having a meeting with his boss at the Library of Congress about all the unexplained absences and thefts at his job. And he says, well, I'm just going to sort of put my hand on his shoulder and, you know, connect with him. And I said, you mean your dead necrotized hand? It's in a, a black glove. And the player says, oh, yeah. And, and that is actually an option we've built into the forthcoming Rivers of London game, is that if you suffer a, you know, a mortal wound, that is something that you can take is a permanent disfigurement as a reflection of how seriously hurt you were. There you go, that's a, that's a bit of an exclusive. Mm. Uh, okay, questions, okay. Uh, in the back in the middle, the ask. So uh, I'm working off of uh, safety words that you were talking about. Uh, in games, with the proliferation of things like X cards and lines and veils and everything, uh, how do you work that in with the horror aspect, uh, especially since a lot of horror games also play off kind of the personal emotions that a lot of people have in the game. Uh, so how do you either still push those lines while having those in order, or how do you kind of work with it when someone plays that and you now have to either completely kind of revert what you were going to be doing? Can, can I, would it be fair if I rephrase your question? Of course. Do gaming safety tools potentially um, can they help the horror or detract from the horror? Is that perfect? Yeah. Lynn, do you want to become a Um, I think they can help it because the whole point is this is a game. You are not trying to deliberately terrify and traumatise your players. You are. Cameron's players all signed a waiver, so that's different. Exactly. They signed up for it. They know what they were letting themselves into. They went into it with open eyes, and they have consented to that. That is the point. It's consent. And this is something you have to think about carefully with gaming. If you watch a horror film, you read a horror novel. It's a passive consumption. You can stop. You can put it down. You can walk away. In a gaming situation, that's active consumption. There is all sorts of peer pressure at that table that will keep you there in situations that you might not want to be in, which is why I think safety tools are really useful and really helpful, because it means that people can experience horror safely, with consent, and in a way that means that they will want to come back. 
You're not genuinely frightening them, upsetting them, traumatizing them, so that they walk away with a really bad impression, having had a terrible experience, and never want to engage with that again. Because that's the last thing you want to happen at your table. Can I, uh, can I add? Um, at Golden Gamble Quest, we, we really believe very heavily in the content warning at the beginning of scenarios. If you don't know what demons people are walking around with in their past, if you're going to be doing something horrific in-game, if that horrific in-game thing is something that person experienced in their real life at some point, it could be seriously traumatic and, and, and unintentionally very cruel. I think it's a game master's responsibility to know the material he's presenting, to know his players, or at least to, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a spoiler and says, hey, this deals with X, Y, and Z, and one of the players go, you know, I'm out. I, I don't think I don't think this is the right game for me, and that's absolutely fine. And I've done that at cons. I've let I said like one person says, "I want to play this character," and I know that this character's got something. And I said, "Read this background and let me know if you're still okay with it." And sometimes they'll be like, "Okay," and sometimes they'll be like, "You know, I, I think I should play someone else, or I, I don't think this is a game for me." And that. That is fine. That's part of the beautiful contract between a game master and his players. You, you, you were here to have fun, but you also have to protect people. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like, when we run our stuff, there is a lot of times a content warning, right? Because, I mean, as much as I'm trying to scare you, I don't want to pick up the phone call and hear you crying on the other end right. <laughs> because I've touched on some trauma that you had, you know? Like, we don't want to do that to you. It's not fair to you, it's not fun, um, you're not going to come back, and you're just not going to have a good time, and you're going to hate us, essentially. And so we, you know, like Oscar said, that if you're doing a certain types of scenarios that, like, on extreme uh, sense might touch on PTSD or even uh, rape or, you know, non-consensual anything you know it's important for Ch child abuse right up i mean child abuse is a huge yes, one a you don't know what one. people have been through yeah you know? sure yeah I, I think we all agree that you know safety tools are are uh good and that they vastly expand the audience for horror gaming and i think that you know from our perspective is a great thing now you know they're harder but it's probably harder to run a roller coaster if you have all those stupid inspections. <laughs> I mean, is the roller coaster scarier if you know there were no inspections? Probably. Some is people, a roller some coaster like rides, you is, know? is a roller coaster worth a lot of death and mutilation? Absolutely not. Okay, so we, we are pretty much on time. I'm going to do one more question. I'm going to look around. Put your hands up if you want to ask a question. I will do the, I will do the interesting question uh, monitor. Uh, it's going to be uh, you. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so my question is, what does it, just your hot take on surviving but failing to actually properly complete the adventure <laughs> okay, you survived, but you didn't complete the adventure, whatever that may mean. Uh, a, a quick, you know, one-line answer from everyone. 
go, uh, Oscar, I'm just going to do the way back. Um, the, the, I've, I've had it more than once happen. I've had one person say, this is ridiculous, I'm leaving, all the other players go, all the other players die. Or he's picking them up at the hospital. The ones who did, like the one or two survivors. The campaign goes on. Um, you know, he, maybe he's, I told you so, maybe like, you know, I shouldn't have left, maybe it would have been different. The emotional fallout after that is glorious in a long-term campaign. Thank you, Oscar. Okay. Um, you know, not finishing means something's still there. It's the, you know, classic question mark at the end of the blob. It's the hand coming up out of the grave at the end of Return of the Living Dead. Um, you know, you didn't finish, dumbass. You didn't stake Dracula. Um, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to see return, and now he knows your name because you came and pestered him in his castle. Um, it, it's like you're, you know, you're, you're a mortal guy. He's like, well, I have people for this, and you know, now you're on the list. Thanks, Ken. That's exactly it. You know, bad guys have their own agenda. They're not just going to stop because the investigators are like, eh. Time to go home. So yes, consequences. They're still going to have their machinations, their plans, everything going ahead. To be continued. Exactly. Cameron. Yeah, to me, uh, failure can be just as scary as succeeding. Like, it's, hey, great guys, you didn't make it. The world's host, good for you. You know, it's just because you decided to go home, everybody's dead. Like, that can still be just as frightening as actually seeing the monster. And also will make all of your players kind of go, oh. <laughs> I, I just had bad dreams. Just make sure they have bad dreams every day thereafter until it drives them around the bend and they have to go back to the cellar and sort it out once and for all. Knowing that the monster's doubled in size since then. <laughs> Thank you, uh, everyone, for your questions. Thanks for your patience and listening to our wonderful answers. Thank you to our illustrious panel. Uh, and uh, I think we should give everyone and yourselves a massive round of applause. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.